Well, good morning, Chapel family. Well, I encourage you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Psalms, Psalm 133, as we continue in our Psalms in the summer, just kind of randomly grabbing different ones. This Psalm is one of the Psalms of Ascent. We have done a couple of others this summer from the Psalms of Ascent, 15 Psalms. This is the next to the last one, starting with Psalm 120 and going through Psalm 134. These psalms or songs of ascent were songs that the people would sing, the Jewish pilgrims, as they were on their way to Jerusalem to worship God, to celebrate uh, the feast times, the festivals in the city of Jerusalem. And so as these folks would Ascend the hills, that's where the psalm of ascent, or the, the name ascent came from. They would ascend the hills on their way, and as they would draw closer to Jerusalem and to the temple, the crowds would get thicker and thicker as hundreds of thousands of people would descend upon Jerusalem for these, these festivals, these feasts. The anticipation would build. There were people, there was festive music, there was food, there was, there were reunions of distant families and distant friends, and, and there were the grand times of worship with, with large choirs and orchestras and much ceremony and much pomp. This was for most of the people, most of the, of the Jews who had come to these festivals, these feasts were the most spectacular events they would see in their lifetime. For us, it would be like going to Disney World or some great big gathering, some big fair, a world's fair or something of that magnitude in our minds. That's what it was for these folks. Interesting, as David writes this song, this psalm, this psalm, uh, he does not focus our attention on the grandeur of the celebration, nor on the decorations and the beauty, nor on the pomp and the ceremony, nor on the buildings or the music or whatever. He, he focuses our attention in these three short verses upon something he finds much more remarkable and something we ought to as well. Follow along as I read the entire psalm. Hopefully you stay awake through it. <laughs> psalm 133, a song of ascent of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. The theme of this psalm obviously is unity. It is the joy of unity. David opens with these words, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Behold, that, that's a word that just simply means, whoa, stop a minute, take a look. This is worth your time to look at this 
and take note and think for a minute. Behold, this is something beautiful. It's beautiful. He says, behold, how good it is. Kind of like for those of us really old folks. Remember the old Jackie Gleason show and he'd say, how sweet it is! It's sweet. It's beautiful. It's outstanding. It's a beautiful thing when God's people are united. Not only is it beautiful, he says, behold how good and how pleasant. It's important that it's both of those things. You see, some things in our life might be good, but not necessarily pleasant. In other words, okra might be good for you. But you might not find it pleasant. I don't unless it's breaded and deep fried. In my way of thinking, nothing we eat should be fuzzy. (laughs) When you bread it and fry it, it kind of disguises that. Some things might be good but not pleasant. Early morning exercise. I don't find much of anything pleasant in the early morning (laughs) I'm just not a morning person, but it's good for you. So some things are good, but not necessarily pleasant. On the other hand, some things are pleasant. They are pleasurable, but not necessarily good. See, sin is like that. It's enjoyable for a while, for a moment. But it has a horrific price tag. It's not good. This, he says, is both good and it's pleasant. And he says as well, if you'll note, this wonderful blessing is brothers living together in unity. Behold, take a look how good, how pleasant it is when brothers live in unity. You see, the reality is you can be related. You can be connected. You can be brothers and not be united, not be in unity. We see it in the church. We're supposed to be a band of brothers here. And yet many times in many churches, the church more resembles a cage match than a band of brothers. And I think David, here in this psalm, he's, he's just marveling and he's, one, he's wondering at this scene that has unfolded before him of folks who have gathered in unity and are worshiping God and they're enjoying the blessing of unity and he's just overwhelmed by it. And he, he says, what a beautiful picture this is because he is one who has learned from personal experience the tragedy of division among those who should be brothers. See, David had seven older brothers. I can only imagine. I had two. My brothers fought like cats and dogs. They were like oil and water. They were just always at it. Especially when mom and dad weren't around. Mom and dad were at work. We were home. I was the little brother. I was much younger, like 25 years. No, not that far. But I was much younger. And so I really was never in the thick of the battle between them. I was the one who was on the phone calling mom at work. saying, They're going to kill each other. I know it. And then she'd get on the phone or they'd get on the phone and yeah, it'd all be fixed. David, I'm sure, saw a lot of sibling rivalry going on in his house. I get that just from the way they treated him, but that's another story. 
David saw it as well when, when he experienced that firsthand the dangers of jealousy and division as David tried to be a loyal and faithful and devoted soldier and servant to King Saul. You remember, and King Saul in his jealousy tries to destroy David. David spends years on the run, hiding, trying to preserve his life from a jealous king. Then following Saul's death, David saw the nation that he loved so much and the people that he loved so much divided, experiencing bitter bitter rivalry and division and war among the people of Israel as some of them wanted David as their king and others didn't. And there were, were years of battle. David understood firsthand the awfulness of division. If you've ever been in a church where there has been fighting, where there's been conflict, where there's been fracturing and division, if you've ever been in a home, in a family where there are brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, husband, wife, where the home is about to fly apart, that you understand with David how tragic it is when those who should be brothers are divided. And then along with David, you will appreciate most dearly what a blessing it is when brothers live together in unity. It's a beautiful thing, David says, this unity. It's a wonderful blessing. And he begins to detail, and then that's verse 1, and in the next two verses, 2 and 3, David begins to detail why unity among brothers is such a wonderful blessing. He uses two illustrations, two analogies to get his point across. He says there in verse 2 that it's like the Precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. And I thought, this is hard for us to get, so I thought I should have Pastor Aaron come up here and I'm going to take some precious oil and pour it on his head and then we will see and witness firsthand just what a beautiful illustration this is of unity. Then I realized this morning that Aaron doesn't have a beard. So that's not going to work. Besides the fact, the reality is, even if we saw oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, down on the beard, onto the collar of his robes, it still wouldn't get it. This is foreign to us. We just don't. If we, you know, if you go up to somebody and you take a bunch of oil and pour it on their head, you're going to get punched in the mouth. Not blessed for, oh, thank you. That's so wonderful. What a beautiful picture of unity. No. Doesn't compute with us. It was different here. See, in the ancient dusty, arid, parched Middle East. This was something entirely different. This was a way of refreshing someone who was parched and dusty and tired. 
This was a way of honoring a special guest. Albert Barnes in his Notes on the Bible says this. He says, the custom of pouring oil upon the head was universal among the Jews. They all practiced it. The oil was that was used was a sweet oil. It was the oil of olives prepared in such a way that it gave an agreeable smell. That was important when people didn't always smell agreeably. It was also used to render the hair more smooth and elegant. We don't think of it that way. We think you're messing up my hair when you pour oil there. And we think you're just ruining me. But for them, it was it's a perfumed oil. It smells good. It feels good. And it moistens the dry skin and the parched skin. And it soothes the sores. And to them, it was an honor. It was a common enough act of hospitality and honor that you may have never thought about this before, but in a passage that you've read and you've heard, Luke chapter 7, where Jesus has been anointed on His feet with this precious, fragrant oil and it's been feet have been wiped with the hair. And you remember this, Jesus speaks to Simon the Pharisee and He says this, you did not anoint my head with oil. In other words, it was such a common thing, it's almost expected that as the guest of honor, he would have been anointed with oil. But you didn't do it. But she anointed my feet. See, it was a common thing. Not only was it common, though, it was welcomed. David is saying that unity is like an anointing with oil. It's refreshing like a cold shower after a hot day of work. It's pleasing like a sweet perfume. It's honoring like a red carpet rolled out to welcome a guest of honor. It's a refreshing thing. But there's more to it here than that. You'll notice that he says it's like Verse 2, the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. You see, Aaron was Moses' brother. He was the first high priest of Israel. His sons and his descendants after him became the priests of Israel. And they were the only priests of Israel. And The oil he says here, he's speaking of, is the precious oil. The precious oil that was used to consecrate the priests. You know, you can read about it in Exodus chapter 29. You go look this up later. Exodus chapter 30. These oil, these, these priests were consecrated with an oil that was precious and it was very expensive. The ingredients were extremely costly to make. The recipe was very exact. And not only that, it was to be an exclusive oil. The, the recipe is given there in the Scripture and it said that this recipe shall never be made and used to anoint someone who's a layman, who's not a priest. It is to be exclusively used to consecrate the priests of Israel to the service of God. Say, so what does that have to do with this? Well, see, as those consecrated priests served God, other blessings happened. They were a blessing to the people of Israel. 
They represented God's righteousness and salvation not only to the folks of Israel, but to a watching world. They were a witness of God to the world. And there's a marvelous lesson for you and me from this little truth, this illustration. You see, unity among God's people then and today is like this anointing oil of consecration. It's not only good and pleasant in itself, but when it is present among God's people, it leads to more blessings. You may remember over in 1 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter writes to the believers and he's telling about some of the, the changes that have happened to you and me when we placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Some of the things that God did to and for you and me. And it says that Jesus Christ has made us to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, you are a priest. Not just a priest, you're a royal priest. May I say, I think that this, that the unity among believers today is like this oil that consecrated the priest then. I think that is really David's point. Let me follow it up more. You see, you may recall that the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, the night before the crucifixion, He and the disciples are gathered in the upper room. They are partaking, they are eating together the Passover meal. And during that Passover meal, in John chapter 13, Jesus says this, By this, all men will know that you are My disciples, that you have the t-shirt that says Jesus. So you've got a fish on your bumper, no? It says, by this all men will know you are My disciples, in that you love, or if you have love, one for another. You see, what sets apart the people of God, what sets apart the people of Christ from those who are not believers should be our love for one another. That is how the world should be able to look at us and tell that we're unique, that we're different, that Jesus Christ is living among us, He is living in us, He is changing us, is that we should have love for one another. Many of you were around last fall as we were studying the early chapters of the book of Acts. We were looking as the church is born and that fledgling young church is growing and we, just, we saw that it was a powerful church making a huge impact as the Gospel spread and people were believing in Christ. And there was one description of the church that kept popping up again and again in those early chapters of Acts. It was something akin to this in Acts chapter 2. Day by day, continuing with one mind. In some places it said they were together. It said they were of one accord. They were in unity. You see, when the people of God are divided, when we are fighting with one another, we miss out on doing and being what God has called us to be and designed for us to be as His people. 
And we're busy fighting one another. We are failing to do what He has called us to do in the ministry of the priesthood of believers where we are to be encouraging one another in our following and our worship of Christ. And we are to be proclaiming the good news of Jesus to a lost world. We can't and we won't do that when we're fighting one another. And even if we do open our mouths and speak up, they won't listen because they will know that Jesus is not with us. Because by this will all folks know that you are my disciples and that you have love for one another. I think that's the point of what David is saying here when he's saying that the, this oil of consecration on Aaron the priest is that's analogous, it's similar, it, it's parallel to the unity among brothers. See, as I said, when we are divided, we don't accomplish what God wants us to do. But when we are united, unity enables us to be a blessing to one another. It enables us to be effective as a holy priesthood. And I like how Vance Havner said this. I thought so good, so well. He said, Christians, like snowflakes, are frail. Amen. Notice the next one. But when they stick together, they can stop traffic. We're divided. We're frail. When we stand together, we make an impact. Well said. King David moves on to a second point, a second word picture, a second analogy to show how wonderful unity is among the people of God. He says, verse three, it is like the dew of Hermon. We go, who is Hermon and why does he have dew? Hermon is a mountain. It's Mount Hermon. It's the tallest mountain in Israel, actually on the northern fringes of Israel. Today it's not even in Israel. It's in Lebanon, Syria, Lebanon. It's well known back then and well known to even today for having heavy dews. So much that one modern day hiker on the mountain said that every morning when they would get up, the dew overnight was so thick on all of their tents and all of their equipments, it was like it had been raining all night long. A place of heavy dew. Because of that dew, Mount Hermon is lush and green and moist. Unity, he's saying, is invigorating like that. It's like a refreshing dew in an arid land that brings forth healthy and uh, thriving and vital life. It's growing. It's, it's, it says unity is like that. It's invigorating. brings life. And so the question might arise. If unity is such a good thing, if it's such an empowering thing among the people of God, how in the world do we get that? That's a great question, especially in a generation and a place where we see so much division. We look at our culture around us in our nation and there is division going on. In my lifetime, I don't know that I've ever seen a nation so so fractured here in, in our land. We see it though not only out there, we see it in here among the people of God. So many churches 
are wrought with division, with fractures, with conflict. So many Christian families are suffering with conflict and division even in their homes. So how do we move from what's out there and what even sometimes we find in here in this division and how do we move to where we experience what is there in verse 1, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. You want to know the answer to that? Not many of you do, apparently. That's good. <laughs> Hopefully you do. If you, if you don't, just at least this much, don't do what this guy did. Don't follow this advice. The guy's name is Eric Daniel Harris. Back in 1996, a fire destroyed the Kentucky Missionary Baptist Church in Saline County, Arkansas. Three years later, 1999, federal prosecutors arrested this man, Eric Daniel Harris, and he confessed to setting the fire. The real twist to the story is this. At the time of the fire, Eric Daniel Harris was the pastor of that church. And when asked why he did it, let me quote, there was division among church members and they needed a project to unify them. <laughs> so let's burn the church down. There's a project for them. <laughs> Don't try that, okay? Just <laughs> How do we get unity? The answer is here in this psalm, and it may really surprise you. I started reading the third verse, the last verse, when I said it's like the dew of Hermon, but let's finish it. Let me read the whole verse in its totality. It, unity it is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. That, I'm sure, cleared it up for everybody. There's some surprises here. You have to look deep to see them. The first is this. First thing, note, he says that the dew of Hermon, unity is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. means nothing to most of us because we know nothing of the geography of the Holy Land. There is Mount Hermon. There's Mount Zion. 150 miles separate the two. And Mount Hermon's about 9,000 something feet, and Mount Zion's about 2,000 something feet, so about 7,000 feet. 150 plus miles. The dew of Hermon never lands on Mount Zion. We didn't clear up a mystery. We just created one. Either David is really messed up on his geography and, and or physics or whatever, or he has a different point. So, first surprise here. The dew of Hermon on Zion? There's a second mystery. It gets a little deeper in the next phrase where he says, There the Lord has commanded the blessing." Where is there, is the question. 
And He's commanded a blessing. And that brings up another question. What in the world is the blessing? And note what the blessing is. Life evermore. Saying, Wait a minute, Pastor. We've been talking about unity. What does life evermore have to do with unity? And what does anything about dew on Hermon and on Mount Zion have to do with unity? How does all this fit together? Because it doesn't seem on the surface to make any sense. And believe me, this made me scratch my head a lot this week. Let me explain what I think he's saying. I think the dew that's falling on Mount Zion, Mount Hermon's dew that's falling on Mount Zion is exactly what he's been talking about all along. We don't have to change the analogy. The dew represents the unity. As it falls on Mount Zion, it's unity. The dew is the unity of the people of God. Secondly, the unity, he says, God has, for there in Zion, God has, Commanded the blessing. The unity is there in Zion because the blessing is there. Isn't that what he says? The dew is in Zion because there God has commanded the blessing. What's the blessing? The blessing, he says, is life evermore. The unity is found in the blessing. And the blessing, he says here, is life evermore. Why is life evermore in Zion, you may ask? Good question. Two reasons. The first is probably what David was thinking. That God had another purpose in mind as well. The first is because at Zion is where the people are gathering to worship God. It's there the people come to meet with God, to worship God. It's there they hear the Word of God. It is there as they listen to the Word of God and they believe God, it's there they are redeemed. It's there they are saved. It's there they find life. What I don't think David understood at the time, though, is that there is life there, eternal life there in Zion for another reason. Because there in the mountains of Zion... Just about a thousand years after David pens these words, Jesus, the Son of God, will come. And there, just outside of the temple, there among the mountains of Zion, Jesus, the Son of God, will be crucified on a cross and will die to pay the penalty for sin that through His shed blood, any who will come and place their faith in Him will have eternal life. As John 3.16 says, as all of you know, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the life is there because of Jesus. The blessing is found in Jesus. And because the blessing is in Zion, the unity is found there in Zion. And 
And therefore, it's the do. It's, the, it's this rich blessing of unity that descends there on Zion. That's the poetry of it. So how do we find unity? We go back to that question. That's what David is writing about, but how do we find this unity? How do you find it in your home? How do we find it in the church? The essential key to unity, this psalm I think is telling us, it's not in methods, it's not in strategies, it's not in efforts, it's not in seminars and videos. None of those things are bad, but that's not the essential key of unity. It's a relationship. Because unity here, the whole point of this psalm is that unity is a blessing, it is a gift of God. Through this psalm, there is, the, there is an analogy and you can see it in the language of it's coming down. It's falling down. You find that verb in the Hebrew several times. It's falling down. It's falling down. The unity is a blessing falling down from God. We don't have to create unity because God does. When you and I find our way, as it were, to the foot of the cross there in the mountains of Zion, and there at the foot of the cross beneath the crucified Savior, we place our trust in Him. Our sins are forgiven. And lots of things happen when you trust in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 says it best, and we don't have time to go there, but you can actually read chapters 1, chapters 2, chapters 3, because he, he lays out there all the wonderful blessings of our salvation. But in chapter 2, listen to the, this word. It says, He, Jesus, is our peace. He goes on to explain it, how, how Jesus has broken down the barriers between people who were originally hostile and alienated from one another. He breaks down the barriers. He has abolished the enmity between them. He has established peace, Paul says. He has reconciled us, Paul says, into one body. You see, when we place our, our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, He places us into Himself. And you and I are brought into the body of Christ. And we don't have to create unity. We are united. We are inextricably connected to one another. As much as my finger is connected to my hand and my hand is connected to my arm and this arm is connected to that arm and my nose is connected to my toes, we are connected like that in the body of Christ. We don't have to create unity. We are united because of our relationship with Jesus. All we have to do, or what we need to do, is we need to live in the unity, which goes back to verse 1. How good and how pleasant it is when brothers live, when they dwell together in unity. See, unity, unity among believers is a beautiful thing whether it's with a married couple or in a family or in the church or in the universal church with our brothers and sisters in other places. It's a beautiful thing. 
It's a great treasure that is pleasing and refreshing. The key to living out this great treasure of unity in our church and in our homes, what this psalm is telling us is it's a close connection with Jesus. It is walking closely with Him. When you and I are closely connected with Him, we are closely connected with one another. That's the key. You see, when when you find that, that there is a barrier building between you and another believer in Christ, whether it's your spouse or your kids or your parents or your, the, the person at the other end of the pew or across the, the, the way from you, when you find there is division between you and another believer, the place to start to find the solution is not by looking for what faults they need to fix. It's not looking for what they did to cause this problem. The place to begin is by examining your own heart and asking, how is my relationship with Jesus Christ? Because I can pretty well say that 99.9% of the time, when there is a division between us and another believer, the problem is that we have stopped walking closely with Jesus. We've gotten our eyes on something else and off of Christ. We've started walking away from Christ instead of with Him. And then what happens is our pride and our sin nature and other things start taking over and we start to become difficult to get along with and we think it's them. (laughs) And so David says, unity is a beautiful thing. And it ought to be what characterizes us as believers here in our church outside of this church with one another and in our homes. I pray as we start to put this, and we look to put this into practice in our life this week, that God will indeed make it so.